Hi, and welcome to Figure Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. This episode, we welcome on author Alex Jennings. Note, there are some racial slurs that are used in the upcoming story. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everybody. My name is Alex Jennings, and uh, this is a short story of mine called Cassius or A Nigger Once. The morning reminded Stanford Hardin of a fancy but abandoned home. Overnight, a thick fog had draped itself over the river. Every gnarled tree or riverside cabin that resolved into view reminded him of a piece of furniture hidden beneath a dusty sheet. The noise of the steamboat reflected against the fog. The air smelled of mud, of, move, of moving water, of burning coal. It was balmy out, especially for mid-January, and the sun was a bright patch high in the eastern haze. It must be getting toward eight or nine, Stanford thought. He wasn't sure how badly the fog had slowed their progress, but they must be in Louisiana by now. Now the paddle steamer passed alongside a barge, Four black men manned the poles. Their clothes were shabby and their expressions were dull. They called to one another, but Stanford didn't bother trying to make out their words. He'd left men like them behind when he'd headed west. Stanford thought he'd have to pick the lock to make his way into Clemson Hazelrig's cabin, but the man had left the stateroom door cracked when he slouched to bed. His balled-up pants had kept it propped slightly open, and he lay half on his side, half on his belly, snoring like he was in hog heaven. He'd even snatched a bucket on his way to bed, and it sat on the floor, half full and just within reach. The ceiling was low, but the room was broad, and the bed looked comfortable. A red and white handmade quilt matched well with the jealousy chair by the bed. Stanford had made sure to get the man too drunk to consider finding a bedmate before he cut and ran from the table with his winnings. He hated to think how this confrontation would play out with an innocent woman in attendance. Stanford positioned the chair at the foot of the bed and sat down with his shotgun across his lap. This way, the stateroom's double window was behind him, and he felt the sunlight on his collar. The sky was still wan and gray, but the light seemed resolved, as if it had prepared for war. Stanford reached under his Stetson to scratch his scalp. He wore his dirty blonde hair cropped short because he didn't like the way it curled when it grew too long. He lit a cigarette and puffed pensively on it as he watched Hazelrig saw logs. He hoped the smoke would mitigate the stench of body odor, vomit, and whiskey that thickened the air. Around noon, Hazelrig farted himself awake. He let one fly, then paused, then paused before another. After that, he belted out a string of them, and Stanford could tell from the attitude of his head that he'd been awake for those last few. Christ alive, he mumbled, then grabbed the bucket and heaved into it. Hazelrig rolled over, wiped his mouth, and opened his eyes to see Stanford in his seat the shortened barrels of his shotgun leveled straight at his face. This soon after waking, Hazelrig's expressions were as transparent as those of a child. 
Stanford watched it occur to him that his gun belt lay slung across the bedside table, wonder for an instant whether he had time to grab it, aim, and fire, and conclude that he did not. What can I do you for, friend? Hazelrig asked. I'd like to have us a little chat, Stanford said. You had quite a night. How's your head? How's yours? You were soused as I was. Not so, friend. By the time you brung your sorry self in here, I was sober as a judge. You here to rob me of my winnings? Hazelrig asked, hopeful. You want me to tell you where they's hid? Hid? Stanford barked a laugh and gestured with his chin. Slowly, Hazelrig rose up on his knees and craned his neck to see over the footboard. Coins and bills lay strewn about the floor. Shitfire, he said softly. Shitfire indeed, Stanford said. I ain't here to rob you, though I may take your winnings when I go. This is about Laredo, ain't it? I'm telling you, Haas, I got a lot more than this squirreled away. I'll split it with you if we can keep this between us. I know about Laredo, and I don't care, Stanford said. I come here to tell you a story. A story? That's right, the story of my life. Hazelrig rolled his eyes. Father God and Sonny Jesus, might as well blow my head off now so I don't have to listen to you piss and moan before I die. You sure about that? Stanford asked. My story is more than a little emotional. You just might be able to grab your pea shooter and do me in while I'm, while I'm lost in a haze of memory. Hazelrig snorted. Well, lay it out then. You're so goddamn bound and determined. I was born here in Louisiana, right by Lake Charles on the Hardin Plantation. There was, oh, 30 slaves, eight in the house, and the rest doing odd jobs and work in the fields. What I remember best was how green it was, a riot of green that seethed. The air was thick with the smell of horses and cattle, and when the wind blew, the trees would shiver as if they ached to bend down and kiss the good earth. My daddy was a cobbler. He would work leather like you ain't never seen. You put on a pair of his shoes and by God you'd stay shod. Taught me everything he knew, except the intangibles he couldn't quite explain. And for that reason, while I was damn good, I was a mere fraction of the cobbler he was. He. Jesus, hoodwinking Christ, you're starting at birth, Hazelrig spat. What about when the good Lord commanded that there be light? Stanford smiled. Kindly shut your frickin' mouth unless I ask you a direct question. That is, if you want to keep your insides inside you. My story starts where it starts, and it was not long after my birth that I met the love of my mortal life. Her name was Relma. I don't know where Hardin bought her from. Her skin was darker than the wood of this floor. She was long and tall, but not raw-boned like me. She was perfectly proportioned with a mind like none other. She sang, she danced, she played the piano fort, and she couldn't have been older than nine when they brought her in. I was only seven or eight myself. I knew the moment I saw her that I would marry her the first chance I got. She, holy moly, you married you a nigger woman? Slowly, calmly, Stanford reached into his duster and withdrew a long, wicked blade. Interrupt me one more time, he said and I'll start cutting on you. For your information, I didn't love me no nigger woman, nor did I marry one. I'll allow as niggers might exist, but if she was one, there ain't no such thing in the world. How's your letters? Do you read? 
Hazelrig just stared. I asked you a question. I read well enough. Well enough. I'd say I do just fine. Her reading and ciphering were better than fine. She taught herself on books stolen from the library. She read English, French, and German. Her mind was like a bear trap. She read or heard instruction, and she'd try a thing once, twice, and the third time would be perfect. She was smarter than ten of you laid end to end. If you say it, it's so. You're the one with the shotgun, after all. That kind of smarts is a curse for a, for a woman of that persuasion. I doubt you're entirely wrong about that. By the time I was 17, we were married after all. My daddy took ill, and I ran his cobbling business for him. I had to pay most of my wages to Master Harden, but he left a percentage to me, and I began to save. It was... We were happy together, but there was a restlessness in me. From time to time, I'd go into Lake Charles and get in and get lit like you did last night. More than once, I took a horsewhip to some son of a bitch who deserved it, and as long as I made sure to absent myself before the folks realized the truth of the matter, I was fine. But when I knew I was heading, but I knew I was heading down a disastrous path. Words started getting around about me. If, well, hold on now, Hazelrig interrupted. Don't cut me for asking, but the truth of what matter? That you were married to a, a slave woman? Stanford considered and decided he'd allow the interruption without punishment. After all, he felt it necessary for Hazelrig to understand him, and the man's confusion seemed genuine. It was perfectly legal for me to marry a slave, Stanford said, as I was a slave myself. Hazelrig's eyes grew wide. The overseer had his way with my mother and her sister. One of my brothers is lighter than me, and the other is dark enough that he couldn't pass if you dressed him in silk suits and called him a Portuguese. Now shall I continue? You said, you said the cobbler was your daddy. The cobbler was my daddy, but the overseer was my father. My daddy cared for me as his own, and I couldn't love him more if I tried. The war started when I was 18. My master was good friends with General Beauregard, and he sent me, and, he sent me a, and some of the other slaves to Corinth to supply the rebel troops during the siege. That was my first taste of mayhem, and I considered it more than enough. I was swept up in the retreat, though. I was told that an officer paid my master 1,000 Confederate dollars for me, and I was to serve as the cobbler for an entire battalion. When, Go when Beauregard took his troops south... I continued to serve for the rest of the war. When Beauregard finally surrendered, I was in Savannah. I could have stayed there and found work, but I chose to return home to Relma. It took me a year and a half to walk there. I arrived to find that Relma was gone. I stayed with my daddy and my brothers until my daddy died. He'd fallen into the fire in the winter of 66, and I tended him as best I could. I remembered kneeling beside his cot and holding his hand as I listened to him struggle for breath. He still smelled of burnt flesh, sickly sweet, and when I knew he wasn't looking, I wept. I don't know whether I cried for myself and my lost wife, for the horrors I'd seen and perpetrated with the rebels, or for the boy that I had once been. After Daddy died, I took all the money I had and bought our land from Hardin. He didn't want to sell, but... 
He'd fallen on hard times, and he made sure to take damn near every cent I had. After that, my family asked me to stay, and I told them I would. I honestly don't remember now whether I knew at the time that I was lying. I knew Relma had gone, and I knew where Relma had gone, and I believed that if I could just see her once, more, just look into her eyes, I could, that I could be free. So I walked to Shreveport. Shreveport, Hazelrig asked. Yes, do you know it? Can't say that I do. But you did say last night. You have quite a low opinion of Shreveport and its citizens. Hazelrig didn't answer. Shreveport was beautiful. Just walking the streets buoyed my spirits. I'd seen cities full of black folk before, but there was something about Shreveport Negroes that I hadn't recognized anywhere else. They had a spring in their step. In the Negro district, black children chase one another across broad lawns, playing hide-and-seek among the bushes and the trees. The houses and carriages seemed to come in every color, dainty as French candies. The house where Realma lived sat back from the street upon a little hill with dark stone steps. Live oaks and pines stood in the yard. The place rivaled my master's house. It wasn't as large or as grand, but it was full of life. I imagined I could hear its windows vibrating like telegraph wires. It was a home. I climbed the steps and stood on the porch. The door was open but for a screen, and I could hear the halting notes of a piano as someone inside picked out a song I didn't recognize. I marveled at the dark wooden floors and the black and white check tile in what must have been the kitchen. Looking at them sapped my strength, and I remember a Bible verse, not even a verse, a line from a psalm, I think. It repeated in my head, I am poured out like water. I felt as if I'd been emptied out, as if I'd cried my last tear. I could neither turn around and descend to the street nor bring myself to knock. I stood there paralyzed until Relma stepped into the hall. She froze when she saw me. We gazed at each other, stricken. I'd always known she was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. What I'd forgotten was by how much. She wore a ruffled blue blouse and her yellow skirt obscured her feet. It reminded me of the dress she'd worn for our wedding when she seemed to levitate everywhere she went. I remember the way her, her fingers moved as she gathered her skirts to jump the broom. And... Stanford cocked the shotgun. Hazelrig halted in mid-reach. Hot tears streamed down Stanford's face, but they didn't obscure his vision. For a moment, he really had been lost in memory, but now he was very aware of himself and his surroundings. Slowly, Hazelrig resumed his former posture and sighed. If you force me to shoot you before we're done, I won't shoot to kill, understand? I turned to go. I even took a step down the stairs, but she called my name, my old name. I stopped, but didn't turn. I stared down at the street, wishing I was anywhere else. I'd got what I'd come for, but seeing her again hadn't freed me. It weighed like a millstone around my neck. Before I could take another step, I felt her hand on my left arm. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been touched. I think I shivered at the contact. She turned me, 
stared into my face, pressed me against her, held my head. You were dead, she said. You were dead. You were dead. They told me you were dead. My God, Hazel Riggs said, they didn't pay no thousand dollars for you. I know that now, Stanford said. Beauregard's men simply reported my death to my master. Relma grieved for years, rebuffed all attentions, and then, finally, along came an enterprising young pastor from Shreveport. Now hold on. He'd been infected by that optimism I'd seen when I was in town. Listen. To the degree that he opted for a change in careers, he decided to run for Senate. I was there the night the Raymonds were killed. That much is true, Hazel Riggs said. That's how I know it was an accident. It was what, Stanford said? An accident? We went there to scare him. That's what we were hired to do. That fat old bitch Lamarck, he hired us and he told us specifically that no blood should be shed. He said, I remember, he said, put the fear of God in him. I remember how impressed he was with the phrase, how his fat face shook when he chuckled. Is that what you did? Stanford asked. You put the fear of God in him? What the hell was I supposed to do? I was a pissant kid working the docks. I didn't have two plug nick nickels to rub together. My foreman had took my pay just that morning, said I'd been late too many times. I had nothing and nobody but my baby sister and Mr. Hazelrig. At the sound of his old name, Hazelrig stopped short. That's right. I know who you are. Now it's your turn. Tell me exactly what happened. Now I'm not the villain here. I only agreed because Lamarck told me nobody would get hurt. It was the liquor. Hand to God, I swear. Half the boys got loaded up on cheap drink down at that bar by the river. The one with the hammer and anvil on the sign? There was 15 of us, hired for $5 a piece. They gave us revolvers and took us by wagon over to Highland after dark. Somebody must have tipped off the Raymond. He was waiting for us on the lawn when we pulled up. He cursed us. I don't mean using filthy language. He was saying stuff like you wouldn't believe. Your grandchildren will wake in their beds knowing they're the progeny of scum. Your wives will turn to dust in your arms. Your livestock will devour each other and no earth you sow will, will bear fruit. You can't just say things like that to a wagon load of pissed off white boys. We started working on him. It took four of us to hold him down. Even then we wouldn't have killed him. We, she was the one who made things worse. Temple went down and done too before we knew what was happening. We'd heard the shots and we still didn't realize. Nobody said nothing about a nigger woman with a gun. Some of us returned fire. Dalton and Lipscomb ran inside to get her. She was on the third floor. I heard the shots while we were on the stairs. The preacher was screaming something, but it got cut off when somebody sliced his throat. We found her in the library. That nigger preacher had the finest goddamn library I ever seen. There was no way he'd read all he'd read all those. She should have dropped the gun. She Lipscomb shot her, and he just and he just got her shoulder. She screamed, fell. You know shoulder shots hurt like the devil. I didn't know what Dalton had in mind until he started fiddling with his belt and kicking her legs apart. So I shot him. Me. Lipscomb went crazy, calling me a nigger lover, saying he'd hang me himself. So I shot him too. I should have. Christ, 
Didn't occur to me till after that that I should have shot her too. When I went back down, there was blood all over the lawn. More than you'd expect, and redder. I told Poche to light the house. I told him we had to burn it down. Everyone, everyone stood there and watched it, but I left. Next morning, I hopped a train out west. You left her to burn, Stanford said. Yes, damn it, I did. I was 14. I didn't know what in hell to do. How's it feel? Stanford asked. How's it feel to tell someone? Better, Hazelrig sighed. He closed his eyes. By God, it feels better, a little better. Can I ask you something? What's that? Am I the first? I know you got to do me in, but it wouldn't be right if you came for me first. You're the last. Stanford said. Good. Hazelrig hung his head as if its weight had become too much for him. He looked up again. You know, she said your name, I think. After she was shot, she said, Cassius. But the preacher's Christian name was Charles. She, without thinking, Stanford fired. That's not my name, Stanford said. Cassius Harden died at Corinth. The end. So this story is a special one for me and my family. It's uh, based on some family lore. Stanford is actually a composite of two of my ancestors, one of whom passed for white and uh, would leave the plantation in Grenada, in Grenada Mississippi and uh, get into scraps there in town. And uh, he... he, he like to beat people with horse whips and then take off before anybody realized that he was a slave uh, from the plantation. The other ancestor, he was pressed into service as a cobbler for the rebels. And uh, it took him a year and a half to walk back home to Mississippi from uh, the fighting. And when he got there, he found that his wife had married someone else. My family tells these stories a lot as a way of holding on to who we are and, and remembering what life used to be like. And uh, so these ideas kind of rattled around in my skull until they came out as this story. And uh, it's kind of an odd bird. I haven't sold it just yet, but I know I will. And uh, I love sharing it with as many people as possible. It's, uh, it's pretty emotional for me. So I have a story coming out in issue one, in issue one of the Podunk Review in January. And I have another story that will be on the fantasy fiction podcast, Podcastle, at some point, but I don't know when yet. I can't really talk much about that one. And uh, as always, I'm, you know polishing up my novel and looking to send it out into the world. So thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed that story as much as I enjoyed writing it. Thanks. That was Alex Jennings, author and co-founder slash MC for the Dogfish Reading Series. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. and on Mondays at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.